Today we resume the reading of Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary might hand you over to the judge. And the judge might hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. In 2015, a 24-year-old school teacher from California named Adeza Uyanwe won a contest to become London's official guest of honor. Part of the prize involved a tour of London Science Museum hosted by none other than the world-renowned physicist Stephen Hawking. During the tour, Adeza asked him, Professor Hawking, what is the human shortcoming you would most like to change? Stephen Hawking said this, The human failing I would most like to correct is aggression. It may have had survival advantage in caveman days to get more food, territory, or a partner with whom to reproduce, but now it threatens to destroy us all. Stephen Hawking followed that up by saying that he would like to replace aggression with empathy because empathy brings us together in a peaceful, loving state. Now, this is an especially amazing statement when you consider that Stephen Hawking was coming from a naturalist viewpoint. Naturalism uh, simply means the belief that nothing exists outside of nature, that there is no God, this natural world is all there is. It's a Darwinian world of survival of the fittest, where the strong eat the weak, it's Jurassic Park. That's the way of the world according to naturalism. And yet, here's this naturalist scientist saying that he believes there's a higher life, a truer, better life that, that human beings ought to be living. And he acknowledges that the only way we'll get there is if we experience some kind of transformation. There's a higher life we ought to be living, but we'll never get there without some kind of transformation. You know, 2,000 years ago, that is essentially the very same thing that Jesus Christ was saying. We're coming back to a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's all about what is the good life? What is the life we're truly meant to live? A life of flourishing, wholeness, and fullness? 
In this section, we're getting into the heart of the sermon. In this part of the sermon, Jesus is getting really specific about what a transformed life really looks like, and he begins with anger. He begins with the aggression, hostility, and the contempt with which we treat one another. Friends, that is not random. Jesus Christ is master of the human condition and the human heart, um, When he begins with anger, he begins there because he knows that that is one of the main reasons, one of the main things that has twisted and distorted us as human beings. Therefore, our transformation begins with reconciliation. What does that mean? Let's find out by seeing three things this morning. Jesus shows us our need for reconciliation. He shows us the practice of reconciliation. And he shows us the power for reconciliation. The need the practice, and the power of reconciliation. First, Jesus shows us our need for reconciliation. In this section of the sermon, Jesus is quoting different parts of the Ten Commandments, and he begins with the one on murder. He says, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, this is like Ethics 101. Everybody knows that murder is wrong. So far, so good. But then Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is saying that you not only break the commandment by physically murdering someone, you also break the commandment just by being angry with someone or calling them a fool. Now, immediately we have a problem because the Bible is full of places where we see God getting angry and Jesus getting angry. You know, Jesus, he throws the money changers out of the temple. He calls the religious leaders fools. So is this like a double standard where it's okay for God to get angry, but not us? No. Jesus is talking about a particular kind of anger, one that he never did, but we always do. And you see it especially in this uh, phrase that he uses when he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka. Now, what is raka? Raka was an Aramaic term of contempt. It means you're nothing. In fact, you're less than nothing. Uh, You're you're a non-person. You're not even worthy of acknowledging Have you ever been treated like that, Raka? Like you're nothing, like you don't matter, they dissed me? Of course you have. It's horrible being treated like that. But what do we do when we're treated with contempt and disrespect? The default nature of our hearts is to respond with contempt and disrespect. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just physically harming someone. The physical harm springs from the resentment, bitterness, contempt, and disdain that we show each other. It's a poisonous seed that grows in our heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. So that means that even though you may not have physically killed someone in your heart, in your mind, you're already murdering them. Now, here's why this is so important. Why is murder wrong? For instance, if Stephen Hawking is right, this natural world is all there is. That means that human beings, you know, we're like just a bag of chemicals. And our most uh, powerful emotions and desires like compassion, empathy, and love, those are just chemical reactions in our brains. So what's the big deal? For instance, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was one of the most famous Supreme Court justices who ever lived. 
And he was deeply committed to Darwinian naturalism. In a letter to a friend, he once wrote this. He said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. In another letter, he said this. Doesn't this squashy sentimentality about human life make you puke? Now, he wasn't being cold or heartless. He was just being consistent with his worldview. If human beings really are nothing more than physical beings, then we have no inherent worth, value, or dignity other than what we just make up for ourselves. Jesus, on the other hand, is saying no. Human beings are not just physical beings. Every human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, resentment, bitterness, contempt, and disdain are every bit as much an assault as physical assault because it's an assault on the image of God in another human being. For instance, why is racism and white supremacy so evil? You know, the doctrine of the image of God was at the heart of Martin Luther King's uh, life work, and the reason that he was so devoted to racial justice. So in a sermon he preached once called The American Dream, he said this, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every human being, from a treble white to a base black, is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every human being is made in the image of God. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. Friends, here's the point. Where does war come from? Where does human violence come from? Where does social division and breakdown come from? It comes from raka, the contempt, the disdain that we show for the image of God in another human being. That's the problem. It's the poisonous seed, and it begins in every single one of our own hearts. So if we really want to experience the peaceful, loving state that Stephen Hawking talked about, then we are in constant need of repairing our relationships. We are in constant need of reconciliation. In fact, here's how urgent this is to Jesus. In verses 24 and 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar— and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come back and leave your gift at the altar. Now, here's what's going on with this illustration. Uh, the altar, for an ancient Jewish person, there was only one altar, and it was at the temple in Jerusalem. So if you lived out in the country... That was like a several-day journey just to come and bring your gift to the altar. When Jesus says, leave your gift and go be reconciled, that would have meant several days' journey back to wherever it is you came from, and then another several days' journey just to be able to bring your gift back to the altar. It's a preposterous illustration, and that's Jesus' point. He's saying, this is so urgent. This is so necessary. Don't let that poisonous seed grow any bigger in your heart. Deal with it right now. Otherwise, it will literally grow into hell within you. Jesus is showing us our need for reconciliation. But secondly, Jesus shows us the practice of reconciliation. And let me offer you two big components of what this looks like. Uh, reconciliation involves an internal work, and an external work. There's an internal work, 
and an external work. Now, the internal work means this. The internal work of reconciliation means breaking the cycle of resentment in your own heart. So, you notice how Jesus said, um, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister? Uh, For you grammar nerds, uh, this phrase, anyone who is angry, in the original language, this is what's called a present participle. Uh, For those of you who are not grammar nerds, here's what this means. Uh, Jesus is saying that this is not just a momentary fit of anger, but the cultivation of anger. This is continuous anger. It's continuous resentment. It's nurturing it, cherishing it, nursing the grudge. Jesus is saying that you have to break break that cycle in your heart. Now, how do we do that? Well, here's how. First, uh, breaking the cycle of resentment means humility. Um, You remember how Jesus said that murder begins in your heart long before it ever happens with your hands? So, for instance, the default nature of every human heart is self-justification. We are always hoodwinking ourselves. In other words, we, we like to say, well, I've never actually committed murder, therefore I'm not as bad as those people. And you hear the way we always say, those people. Do you hear the contempt and the disdain in our voice? Do you hear the raka? Jesus is saying that breaking the cycle of resentment, first it begins with humility by recognizing that we're no better than others and therefore we're not in a position to condemn them. Secondly, breaking the cycle of resentment means repentance. Uh, That means that uh, we learn to ask the question, what's my part in this? Even if something is 99% someone else's fault, emotional and relational health means developing the habit of asking the question, what's my part in this? How did I contribute to this situation? I have a friend, a pastor friend, who became pastor at a church that was experiencing a lot of relational turmoil. Uh, There were so many people that were so upset with each other. So when he got there, one of the first things he did was he was going around talking to people, trying to figure out, man, what happened in this place? One day he was sitting in his office, office with someone who was telling him all these horrible things that these other people had done. And they were horrible things. But my pastor friend said to that person, what was your part in it? How did you contribute to it? And that person just said, what, me? Nothing. My friend told me that he knew at that very moment that this was not going to end well and that that person would probably end up leaving the church unreconciled. And that's exactly what happened. Friends, breaking the cycle of resentment in our hearts means first, humility. Second, it means repentance. But third, it means forgiveness. I mean, let's say, for instance, that somebody really has hurt you. Forgiveness means, as another pastor I know puts it, that we give up the right to make someone pay. Forgiveness means that we're giving up the right to make them pay. And understand, there's a difference between holding someone accountable for their actions and making them pay. You know, we should hold people accountable. Not doing that is dysfunctional. It's codependent. But there's a big difference between holding someone accountable and making them pay. When we hold someone accountable for their actions, refusing to make them pay means that we take no pleasure in holding them accountable. Because when someone hurts you, our instinct is to hurt them back. We want to crush them. We want to demolish them. Holding someone accountable but not making them pay means that when we hold them accountable, we're doing it with the goal not of crushing them or demolishing them, but with the goal of seeing the image of God restored and renewed in them. 
Friends, the internal work of reconciliation is breaking the cycle of resentment in our own hearts. That means, first, humility, that that we recognize we're no better than others. Second, it means repentance, that we ask the question, what's my part in it, even if it's just 1%. And third, it means forgiveness, that we are giving up the right to make someone pay. Now, that leads us to the external work of reconciliation. And by the way, do you see that if we're really doing this internal work first, the humility, the repentance, and the forgiveness, that that would absolutely transform the way we approach someone when we actually begin to go do that external work of reconciliation with someone. So for instance, if you're going to somebody that you hurt, this means first, you're going to own your part. Second, you're going to ask forgiveness for what you did. And by the way, um, understand that that you're not in control over whether someone else grants that forgiveness. Other people are responsible for the cycle of resentment in their own hearts because there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness only takes one person. Reconciliation takes two people. You're not in control over whether or not reconciliation happens. You're not in control over what somebody else does with this process. You are only in control over your part of the process, over your repentance, your forgiveness. But when you go to somebody that you hurt, it means that first, you're going to own your part, and you're going to do that without making excuses, without shifting the blame onto that person by saying, here's what you did that provoked me. None of that. It means you're going to own your part, You're going to ask forgiveness. Third, I would also add, it's going to mean be eager to listen to things that that person might share with you about how you really hurt them. A lot of times it's easy to think, well, I know how I hurt them. I did this, I did that. But but then that person might share something with you. They may say, well, you know, yeah, those things didn't feel great, but here's how you really hurt me. And then they would share something with you that wasn't even on your radar. Be eager to listen to that. Be eager to hear how your actions impacted someone else in ways that you may not even be aware of. If we always think that we know how we hurt someone, if we always think we have the answers, if we're always defensive and never willing to listen, that's going to break. It's going to block the, the cycle of reconciliation in our relationships. Now, lastly, let's say that you're going to somebody who hurt you. Um, First, I just want to encourage you, please, make sure you're doing your very best to do as much of that internal work as you can first. But secondly, I would say especially that means that the forgiveness, the refusing to make them pay, and cultivating a longing in your heart to see God's image restored in them. That's especially difficult when you're really angry with somebody, justifiably so. But do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? It's all about a son who basically said to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. And then he runs away from home. And it's not until his life completely falls apart that he finally goes back to his father repentant. Now, in that culture, it was a shame-honor culture. Any Middle Eastern patriarch like that would have been expected when his son came back like that to beat him and rebuke him. But instead, this father, when he sees the son from far off, he runs out to his son and he showers him with kisses of forgiveness. Tim Keller, the great pastor in New York City, brilliantly observes that the only way the father could kiss the son when he came home was because all those days when the son was gone, the father was always kissing him in his heart. 
That means he wasn't nursing the grudge. He was breaking the cycle of resentment in his own heart so that when the son finally came back home, he was able to kiss him for real because he had already been kissing him in his heart. He wasn't longing for revenge. He was longing for reconciliation, for the renewal of the image of God in his son. Friends, there's a lot more that we could say about this, but these are some of the basic components of reconciliation according to Jesus. But that leads to our last point. We've seen our need for reconciliation. We've seen the practice of reconciliation. But lastly, Jesus shows us the power for reconciliation. Because here's the big question. You know, all of this sounds really good in theory, but how are we actually going to live like this? Because if it really were this easy, if it was this obvious and this simple, then our world wouldn't be in the mess that it's in, would it? reconciliation like this is incredibly rare to see in our world. So for instance, when apartheid fell in South Africa and Nelson Mandela became the president of the country, the whole world thought there is no way that they are going to be able to have a peaceful transition of power. I mean, they read it in the news headlines all over the world every day. There's no way this is going to happen without it being a bloodbath. But that didn't happen. Why? One of the main reasons that did not happen was because they established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was chaired by a Christian bishop named Desmond Tutu. They created a space where people who had been brutalized could come and share the truth about what had happened to them and where the people who had committed the brutalities could listen, repent, and seek forgiveness Now, there have been a lot of truth and reconciliation commissions in various countries throughout the world. Uh, They are not without their faults. This is not a perfect system. But this is a powerful taste of what can happen when we create intentional space in our lives for truth and reconciliation. And by the way, America desperately needs something like this in our country to deal with our own racial history. But friends, here's the question. How could something like that happen in our own lives? How, how are we able to practice the kind of reconciliation that Jesus shows us here? What we need is a sense of self that is so secure in an experience of love and acceptance that we are able to receive the most painful truths about ourselves without being devastated by condemnation, without being devastated by raka, and um, so safe and secure in love and acceptance to be able to share painful truths with others without condemning them with raka. How are we going to do that? There's only one way that we could possibly live like that. It's the gospel. The only way that we can practice this kind of reconciliation is by having the center of our lives and the foundation of our identities absolutely transformed by the reality that all of this has already been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus talks about the altar, about bringing our gift to the altar, but leaving it there and going and being reconciled and then bringing our gift back to the altar, you know what he's saying to us? Jesus is saying that our relationships with other human beings are always ultimately a reflection of our relationship with God. Our relationships with others are always ultimately a reflection of our relationship with God. Because remember, for Jewish people, there was only one altar. It was at the temple in Jerusalem. But the altar was a place of sacrifice. It was a powerful reminder that in order for forgiveness to happen, somebody has to pay the cost for what got broken. 
You know, if, if you refuse to make someone pay, forgiveness means giving up the right to make someone pay. Guess what? That debt doesn't just disappear. It doesn't go away. Somebody has to pay the cost. Somebody has to pay the debt. Forgiveness means you absorb the cost. Forgiveness means you pay the debt. Forgiveness hurts. Forgiveness costs. If you've ever really had to forgive someone, you know how painful that is. You know how much it costs. When Jesus takes us to the altar, it's his way of reminding us that we all stand before God in need of forgiveness. The only way that you can stand in judgment over another human being is if you feel that you don't deserve judgment. But if you know that you do, then how is God supposed to forgive you? The only way is if he absorbs the cost, if he pays the debt for what happened. Friends, that is exactly what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. When, when you look at Jesus nailed to the cross, that is showing you the most painful truth of all, that our relationship with God is tragically broken because of our pride, our rebellion, our selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-righteousness. The cross shows us the painful truth of what that cost. But secondly, when you look at Jesus Christ on the cross, not only does it show us the most painful truth of all, it shows us the most powerful love of all. Because who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is the image of God revealed in this world. And Jesus brought the ultimate gift, his very life. He laid it on the altar of the cross and he left it there in order that you could be reconciled to God. Because on the cross, Jesus received the raka that you deserve so that we could receive the love that he deserves. Friends, that means that the most painful truth is wrapped in the most powerful love. It's wrapped in grace. Do you realize what that does for you, what that does for your relationships with other people? I mean, here's what all of this means. I would sum it up like this. Truth makes it possible to practice reconciliation. Grace makes it safe. Truth makes it possible to practice reconciliation, but grace makes it safe. That means that you are able now to share and to receive the most painful truths of all because they're wrapped in the most powerful love of all. They're wrapped in, in grace. You're able to share and receive truth without raka, without condemnation, because Jesus already absorbed all of the raka for you. Truth makes it possible to practice reconciliation, but grace makes it safe. Do you know this truth? And have you experienced this grace? The more you experience the reconciliation with God that Jesus won for you on the cross, the more you will be able to practice the same kind of reconciliation with others in your life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the reconciliation that, that you paid the cost to achieve with us in our lives. Father, we're all rebels, we're all murderers in our heart because we've all assaulted the image of God in others. And our assault of that image of God in others is always a reflection of the breakdown in our relationship with you. Father, we are in desperate need of reconciliation with you. That's the only way we can be reconciled with others. So we thank you this morning for sending Jesus to reconcile us to you on the cross so that we could experience reconciliation with others. We pray that you would give us power and grace this morning to receive this most painful truth, but that it would all be wrapped in the most powerful love, that we would be able to practice the same kind of reconciliation with others. Father, for we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.